Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Edwin Turner, who is a professor of astrophysical sciences at Princeton University. He also serves as co-chair of the NAOJ Princeton Astrophysics Collaboration Council. He has carried out extensive astronomical observations at Mount Palomar Observatory, uh, Kitt Peak National Observatory, NRAO's uh, Very Large Array, Apache Point Observatory, the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan's Subaru Telescope, and with the Hubble Space Telescope. Welcome, Ed. Thank you. Happy to be here. Sure. So I want to start with one of your earlier papers, and it's entitled Bayesian Analysis of the Astrobiological Implications of Life's Early Emergence on Earth, in which you say life arose on Earth sometime in the first few hundred million years after the young planet had cooled to the point that it would uh, it could support water-based organisms on its surface. The early emergence of life on Earth has been taken as evidence that the probability of abiogenesis is high if, if starting from young Earth-like conditions. Now, just to set the context, Ed, um, so the solar system about 5 billion years old, the Earth itself about 4.5 billion years old, and, uh, and I guess we have some evidence that life originated around um, 3.8 billion years ago, some, something along those lines? Yes, that's, the, those numbers are all roughly correct. They're, they're not absolutely certain, but the, um, the general consensus view is that, as you said, the Earth formed about 4.5 billion years old, but a, a rain of, of so-called heavy impacts, meaning objects, meteors, and asteroids and small objects in the early solar system, not every much, there was a much greater abundance of these objects uh, still crashing into the planets and helping them form, uh, probably heated and perhaps reheated the Earth's surface. These were huge impacts, depositing energy that was, you know, millions of times like the energy of all the nuclear weapons that people have ever built. (laughs) <laughs> right. uh, and, and vaporize the ocean and probably sterilize the earth um, if, uh, if life had gotten started by that point. Uh, all of those statements are, you can look at slightly different scenarios. The evidence for them is not, I would say, incontrovertible, but that looks like the best we know. Okay. And that so, ended about yeah. 3.8 nine or to 3.8 billion years ago they call it 3.9 billion years ago mm-hmm. and the early evidence earliest evidence of life that we have as you say goes back to about 3.8 billion years ago it's fairly uncertain it might have there's i think uncontroversial evidence at about 3.5 billion years ago mm-hmm. so we don't know exactly when life got started but of course it got started earlier than our evidence and in other words the very first life must have appeared, you know, long before, well, not long before, but before 
Uh, you know, there was something that left a record of a fossil or a chemical tr- signature yes. that we can identify. So we don't know how early it started, but it was certainly within, say, a couple of hundred million years and possibly much less than that. Right. Yeah. So a few hundred million years, um, give or take. Uh, but but the but but that's very very quick. So the puzzle um, that humans have been struggling with is uh, one of it is the the Fermi paradox. Uh, we haven't had any contact with with any life uh, outside, and um, you know <laughs> any time you you compute probabilities based on a zero multiplied by infinity, uh, it, it's quite difficult to <laughs> difficult to understand. I don't think we understand infinity really well. I'm, I, sometimes I wonder if you understand zero uh, that well either. And so, so, so people say, you know, the, pro, the possibilities are so high that it should, life should be, should be out there in, in pretty much anywhere you look, but we haven't found them. So, so this idea that life originated very quickly, as soon as the planet cooled to a level that it can harbor water, gives us some indication why, uh, why we think that, right? How prevalent extraterrestrial life could be. Yes, that's, that's correct. It's, um, as, as someone, uh, I think Charlie Len, uh, Weaver uh, expressed it, it's like if you move to a new town and they have a lottery, uh, you don't know anything about the odds, but you decide to buy a lottery ticket just to you know, fit into your new community. And the very first one you buy is the winner. You might yeah. conclude from that that the chances of winning this lottery are not so tiny, you know, because you were lucky so quickly. Whereas if you had to live there for, you know, you live there for 40 years buying a lottery ticket every day and then won, you might think, you know, that the, the odds were quite a lot smaller. So it's a hint. The point of yeah. the paper you mentioned was to try to do a rigorous first principles Bayesian statistical analysis to try to determine exactly how much of a hint it is or how strong of a hint it is that life arises easily. Yeah, so so let's get into the paper. Um, and so there are a lot of puzzles, right? So there's the origin origination puzzle, and then there is the evolution, evolution puzzle. And all through the evolution, there are some step function changes that, that makes it uh, difficult to understand. But the origination puzzle is the, is the biggest one, right, among all of them? Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think all of the others are, uh, I don't know exactly what word to use, manageable, so to speak. But yeah. the discontinuity between the most complicated chemical systems we know that are we would call non-living and the right. simplest chemical systems that we would call life is just vast, enormous. It's an incredible change in complexity. And there's very little sign. There's not only not much time available for it to happen, um, as best we can make out from the origin of life on Earth, but there's also not any real traces of those intermediate steps that must have must have occurred very quickly, you know. So we we can't point at some chemical system and say, you know, this is halfway there or 10% of the way there. And I, it's like we went from, you know, very, from almost zero, from point in some measure of complexity from 0.00001 all the way up to mm-hmm. one, like super quickly. And uh, that sort of suggests that maybe life was just very lucky on Earth in one or more ways, you know, either in one very improbable event or maybe a series of improbable events, but it sort of gives one the feeling that uh, there's a big gap there. And so the paper that Dave Spiegel, uh, my co-author and the first author of that paper, and I were trying to ask is, it turns out that Bayesian statistics gives you a um, a mechanism, if you will, for, mm-hmm. you know, deriving exactly what the statistical implications of something like that are. And also into taking into account the very important issue of selection biases or selection effects. We, we have to exist. You know, we, we could only be asking the question if we're on a world in which A, life got started and B, got started early enough to leave time for, you know, evolution to a level where we were thinking about such issues. 
Right. So, um, so is RNA-based organisms uh, sort of sit between life and non-life, right? So is our hypothesis that that is the first thing that showed up? Yes, that's, that's, um, there was very great excitement in the uh, origin of life uh, community of researchers around this hypothesis that came along, you know, some decades back now, that in fact, there might have been a whole RNA world, as it's called, a whole RNA form of life um, mm-hmm. that preceded, uh, you know, the full DNA protein version we have now. So the idea is that the two main classes of molecules that caused, you know, that make up terrestrial life that are the basis of terrestrial life are the nucleic acids, of which there are two kinds, the DNA and RNA, and uh, proteins. And, uh, you know, they involve a great deal of complexity. But um, so the idea is that maybe it's conceivable that the um, RNA world somehow functioned with just one kind of nucleic acid and no proteins and no DNA, and then that you made the tr- transition to those. Uh, and, and people are very, have been for a long time, so excited about this idea that I would say they have adopted it as, you know, the code of conventional <laughs> wisdom without a lot of strong evidence. Personally, I don't think it actually helps that much because the RNA world is already vastly complex. And, yeah. uh, so, you know, it helps a little, but we're still talking about a huge transition. And as the chemist Stephen Benner has pointed out, you're kind of fooling yourself by saying that you're doing it all with RNA because mm-hmm. the parts of it, if you, you can have RNAs that uh, are both uh, self-catalytic, meaning they can, you know, repro- they can reproduce or copy themselves and which have... Yeah. Uh, metabolic-like functions, but uh, so mm. they can do both the, the genetic function of DNA and the uh, metabolic or functional uh, things that proteins do. But yeah. as Benner pointed out, it's really different parts of a strand of RNA that do that. So you're really still doing both very complicated things and with different bits of chemistry, but you're then just plugging the two molecules together to make one big one. Right. It's not really the case that you are doing both with the same thing. It's just different. You know, it's like one of those things that's a fork and a spoon. What do they call them? Sporks or something? It's like you have, you have different ends of it, so to speak, doing different things. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's... So my understanding Ed, is that an RNA-based entity requires a cellular mechanism for reproduction, replication. So is it, I mean, can we really imagine a world that is just RNA-based? I mean, how would they, uh, unless they sort of de-evolved from what they used to be into to what we, what we see today? Well, it's, no, I, it, the... I, I'm perhaps not the right person to speak for this view because I'm skeptical of it. But yes, I think it's yeah. very challenging. I mean, just to to give you know one example, the the uh, the RNA that's at the heart of a ribosome, uh, which is often mentioned as you know the uh, of the a piece of strong evidence of, of a sort of fossil of the RNA world. What it actually does is make proteins, but the RNA world wasn't supposed to have proteins. I mean, so right. yeah. the fact that, that RNA can self-catalyze and can carry out some uh, metabolic functions is very interesting. But, uh, I, you know, it's, it's still a very big leap to say that you know how a world, like, I mean, we don't even perfectly understand how the 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 biology you know the molecular biology of the world we have works much less be able to figure out how it would have worked on such a such a different basis but there there is some hope there and uh, yeah but it's it's difficult rna single rna strands are very fragile and in fact the another point due to stephen benner is that the most common functional thing an RNA molecule can do if you make random ones in the lab. The most common 
process they carry out is to cut other RNA molecules into pieces. They cleave. Mm. So if you're mm. not careful and you evolve an RNA world, it will be self-limiting. It will be full of RNA molecules that uh, cut cut each other to pieces, basically, that break each other up and prevent the formation of much more complicated molecules. Right. So, so there's some hope there, but I think it's it's a little bit, it feels to me a little bit like grasping at straws. Not impossible, but not not a, not a yeah. sure bet. So, so what's the hypothesis that you prefer? So, um, you know, you could think about a lot of different things. You could think about RNA sort of a base product um, of the DNA uh, evolution. It could be uh, RNA, DNA-based organisms co-evolving. Uh, so what's the hypothesis that you prefer or you, you think is most likely? Uh, well, I'm going to give you an answer to that question that you probably won't like. Uh, or at least won't be very interesting to your listeners, which is simply to say that my experience in science is it's much better if you can avoid having a preferred uh, answer to an important question in the absence of strong, compelling evidence. And uh, Richard Feynman used to say, you know, that the most important thing to science is not to be fooled, not to fool people. And the person that's easiest to fool is yourself. So I, 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 I really think that the answer is we don't know, and there's not strong evidence mm-hmm. either way. And people who work a lot in a field, I've, most of my life I was a cosmologist, most of my career, I should say, uh, most the yeah. vast majority of my publications have been in the area of cosmology. And cosmology is a similar problem in the sense, field, not problem, a similar field in the sense that there, you know, are very big important questions and uh through most of my life not very strong evidence and people would become very committed to one answer or another and write a lot of papers about it so so i i really (laughs) have an open mind and or try to anyway and don't but i think the 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 conclusion that the paper that dave spiegel and i wrote uh yeah what i believe is that the the early emergence of life on earth is a hint that life gets started easily. That's sort of the best guess. But it doesn't, mm. in some way, we don't know, but it, you know, that in and, and a way that probably implies a lot of extraterrestrial life in the universe, at least simple life. Hard to say about more mm. complex life. But, but I think it also does not rule out, and this is the way in which the paper uh, made a conclusion which was contrary to the, I don't know if you would say conventional wisdom, but many people in the field's opinion, it doesn't actually yeah. rule out the chance that the the event that started life on Earth was some extremely rare statistical event, including something mm. so rare that it would imply no other life in the um, observable universe, you know, out to the light travel time since the distance since the, the mm. Big Bang. Uh, so uh, it's. I think at the end of our paper, we had some sentence that said something like, I don't know if, you know, an enthusiast of extraterrestrial life should be encouraged, but not uh, convinced or something or not secure. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the earlier appearance of life is, has weaker implications than people, uh, many people had thought. That's was the, the sort of you know, one line conclusion from the paper I would, that I would hold to. So the so the Bayesian statistical framework uh, you applied, uh, essentially it's indicating that it is realistic to assume that the probability of life evolving is is really small, even if you multiply that with a very, very large number. Uh, not infinity, but very, very large number, you still, you, you could come out with uh, a very, very small number in, in terms of how many life forms might be right. out there. Right, it, it just, it just if, you, if your hypothesis was that this huge step in, in complexity, which we t- talked about, yeah. you know, in, in between the you know, non-living and living chemical systems, was just due to some crazy improbable fluke that happened to happen on the earth, just something that, you know, mm-hmm. like monkeys typing a song, you know, monkeys banging on a keyboard randomly 
writing a Shakespearean sonnet or something, those sort of things, a random combinatorial uh, event that, you know, would occur in 10 to the minus some big number of times you had the chance to do it. That hypothesis is not ruled out. Now, many people that read the paper mm -hmm. think, believe that I and D Dave and I think that that's the correct answer, at least for me, I wouldn't try to speak for him. Uh, that's not the case. It's not that I'm convinced that, that there was a rare statistical fluke. I'm just convinced that we have no way of ruling that out. Hmm. Our ideas are getting a bit clouded, I guess, when we think about once we have that happen, that the first accident happened, then you know we can see um, the 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 plethora of directions it went yes. right. Uh, the the world is teeming with all sorts of life. Um, that uh, maybe maybe that is that is noise uh, that doesn't give us clarity uh, for time equal to zero type uh, type question. Um, but it, it's also some indication, right, Ed, that. Um, you know, I sometimes think of this as there has to be a physics basics for life, you know, some sort of a thermodynamics based idea that entropy is always increasing. Uh, maybe life is a way to accelerate increase of entropy or something along those lines. And if there is a physics basis for it, then uh, it has to happen everywhere, pretty yes, much. Yes, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, hypothesis and one that I've occasionally talked about I haven't published on, but uh, as you know, the second law of thermodynamics says that disorder has to increase in, a, in an yeah. finite enclosed system. And life does exactly the opposite. It has uh, order increasing, it has entropy de decreasing in a restricted area of a system, uh, whereas it can't yeah. violate the second nothing can basically. So what happens with life is when life uh, forms or operates, you know, lives, metabolism occurs, you have some small isolated part of the system, the creature itself, let's call it, or the cell, in which entropy is decreasing and order is increasing at the expense yes. of, of causing uh, increased de in decreased entropy and increased disorder outside it. Now, that clearly is what's going on. And you can see it going on in scales that have nothing to do with life, the formation of galaxies and the solar system out of interstellar, um, first intergalactic material and interstellar period also does that. It produces greater order yeah. in a small area and more disorder in a large area. And one could imagine there's a sort of fourth law of, of uh, thermodynamics in which says that they're under some conditions, I might be mathematical conditions, might be conditions on the laws of physics, that there's a natural tendency for entropy, the total, while the total entropy is increasing, the distribution of entropy in different parts of the system might be spreading. So the difference between the most mm. disordered and the least disordered, or most ordered and most disordered parts of the system might increase as a function of time. And that would, that would suggest that life is a consequence of this sort of thermodynamic law. That would be very exciting type of, and if I were a better physicist, I would, I would try to come up with, you know, some proof of that, but that's kind of beyond <laughs> me. But, but that's one way of reading it. Yes, that's a possibility that would kind of bridge the, uh, the, oh my gosh, it just looks magical kind of reacting to life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, then one could imagine uh, it, it is a universal law. So wherever we look, there has to be uh, potentially life. Uh, but again, that takes us back to sort of the Fermi paradox question. Uh, we don't really see yet, at least intelligent life. Uh, it might be that it takes more time but I also want to ask you, Ed. Uh, so the in the uni in the universe we see uh, galaxies, we see um, star systems, uh, and so there is order in small volumes uh, at the expense of disorder elsewhere. 
but we don't see that ha- that is driven by gravity fundamentally right but we don't see that happening in small spaces like a, a room you know uh, filled with gas or something like right. that right um the that, that's certainly true and and means that well first of all it may mean there's no such fourth law of thermodynamics and all of that's just you know so much whistling in the dark guessing uh but um <laughs> yeah it would also imply that this tendency to to form uh, greater order on smaller scales must only apply under certain conditions, which uh, you know don't seem to apply in you know the ga- the air mole- distribution of air molecules in the room and stuff. That that it clearly doesn't, I guess, uh, or at least if it does, it doesn't happen very rapidly. Uh, but um, and uh, could only really occur by some one of these highly improbable statistical things. There's no law or fourth law of thermodynamics or something driving it that way. So that's that's evidence against that. You mentioned the Fermi paradox a couple of times. I should add that one of the advantages of the the theory that life appeared by one of these incredibly rare statistical fluctuations is that it's uh, refute. You know, it's it's uh, refutable. Yeah, there is no it, paradox. <laughs> it, it could, yeah. uh, if we find other life in the universe, other you know, outside the Earth, that will instantly tell us that you know it probably wasn't one of these incredibly rare statistical fluctuations. Mm. Um, so, as, as a model of how life started, unlike most of them, it's a, uh, a uh, you know a hypothesis that can be tested and rejected. Falsifiable. Yeah, so falsifiable was the word I was searching for. Yeah, so see, it, it's a sort of a clean break if we can find something, uh, but till we find something, we are sort of in a in a limbo. Uh, I just want to touch back on gravity one more time. So, um, it, it, life um, components of life is much heavier than. Let me ask you: They they are much heavier than molecules and atoms. So, do do we? Uh, is it possible that gravity is playing a role in uh, in the formation well, of life? Not, I, I I don't think it's at all plausible that gravitational forces operating on the scale of molecules, you know, are there so the forces are so tiny compared to everything else involved, were what pulled living yeah. molecules together. However the source of free energy that uh, uh, the primary source of free energy in, in biology on Earth comes, of course, from sunlight and or from um, radioact- the decay of radioactive elements that were formed in the centers of stars. So the, the, the expenditure of what's called Gibbs free energy or, or just free energy in thermodynamic terms that yeah. is required to to uh, you know, drive increase. Uh, I'm sorry, decrease entropy in a small volume. That energy comes ultimately from uh, gravitational sources, and and gravity mm-hmm. does this due to the fact that it has a negative specific heat. That is to say, when you put energy into a gravitate a system that's dominated by gravity, it gets colder instead of hotter. Mm. And so. Um, I don't know if it is extensible this way. A lot of the experiments of, you know, sort of recreating life uh, started sort of at the atomic and molecular level. Uh, I wondered if you take it one step further uh, into a point that, you know, some of these other, um, other forces could become more interesting to look at. Um, have, do we have experiments that starts not at you know the initial conditions um, with nothing, but rather initial conditions a little bit further up in terms of progression? Um, I'm well, yes, in a way. The, the there's certainly a lot of molecular biology that's done, not so much from the point of view, as far as I know, of recreating life, but of you know doing. Modif- you know, producing designer proteins and pharmaceuticals yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, doing genetic modifications of, of creatures, crops, and also uh, other creatures 
the, those don't start down at the individual atomic and molecular level. They start by, you know, manipulating already incredibly complex existing molecular biology machinery. Right. You, a, a sort of one more thought that I have to attribute to Stephen Benner is that uh, when something <laughs> dies, you know, when a cell dies, yeah, it's full of, uh, you know, major pieces of the molecular apparatus of life. It's, you know, all of those proteins mm-hmm. and nucleic acids that were doing things uh, start breaking up and falling into pieces and being oxidized and so on. But if you look not too long after after it died, it's sort of, you know, it's like your child built some elaborate thing out of Legos and has now broken it into... Mm-hmm. You know, not down into the basic Legos, but into, you know, the pirate ship or farm or whatever it was, is now in five or six different pieces, which makes it pretty easy to put it back together. But what we don't see is Mm. things coming back to life, dead cells, you know, finding some way to to use the fact that they already have what you described, I think, as a rather higher level of organization to start from. That doesn't seem to happen. So that's a little discouraging, I would say, from uh, the point of how easy it is to get from sort of, you know, up that last step from sort of just sub-life levels up to the life level. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So we, we, we are sort of uh, still stuck <laughs> in the... Uh, in in um, trying to figure out um, y- your paper seems to uh, at least says that it is okay. Uh, we could have an outcome that the probability of life originating is very low. And if that's the case, uh, Fermi paradox is not a paradox at all. Uh, so till we find something outside, that, that still seems to be sort of the dominant position we can take, right? Is there anything else oh, we could... You- you mean some we some other do. position to explain the Fermi paradox, other than other than the universe just being dead? Uh, uh, yeah, pa- paradox, or or even I mean, so if somebody were to ask today, is there life out there? The answer has to be that it is unlikely. Well, people's to opinions on that differ a great deal. It's it's to, say, to put it mildly. <laughs> okay. And it's very hard to prove that something isn't there. You know, like if, if I ask you yeah. to prove that there are right. no unicorns on Earth, you know, well, there's never <laughs> been a unicorn, you know, there's not a unicorn in the room, there's not a unicorn, you know, where we've looked and so on, or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's just, and, the, and our, our capacity to date uh, to yeah. search the universe is so incredibly limited. You know, it's, it would be sort of like if, mm. if I said, well, here on the surface of my desk, there's, I don't see any ant. I don't see an ant. There must not be any ant anywhere <laughs> in the world. So there's a right. huge extrapolation right. there. But in a very general way, I would say this Fermi paradox could indicate that life is absent. It could indicate that life is just a lot less conspicuous and more low profile than the Fermi scenario mm. envisions. Uh, you know, it could be that it, there's a sort of limiting technology somewhere that we haven't hit that would be impossible for life to right. spread. You know, life could be quite rare. Maybe there's one technical civilization per billion years per galaxy. That would still be a lot in the universe. But the chance it would happen right. here might be quite small or the chance we could see signs of it. But it does seem to argue against the universe, like really teeming with life. I mean, if you you want me to make mm. you know enemies of some of my colleagues, the, the city <laughs> yeah. where we're looking for radio signals from advanced civilizations, for that to have any significant chance right. of success, there has to be quite a lot of civilizations right. out there with quite advanced technologies who are similar enough to ourselves that, you know, they're broadcasting signals we could pick up and so on. That, that level, that scenario feels to me pretty unlikely because it seems like if there were enough to give the SETI people a chance, we would have probably bumped into them in a more Fermi sense. Right. 
Great, great. And and the issue there, of course, is the space-time corridor we can explore right. is so thin that, um, yeah, it, it's a, it's analogous to your um, finding the ant on your on your desk uh, in a in a universe the size of the world, and uh, and so so that's a complication. Uh, we'll take a quick break, Ed. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about the extraterrestrial okay, planets. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, so, so Ed, I want to uh, go into a couple of your other papers. Uh, this is uh, sort of looking at um, using data that 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 we typically don't use, I guess, uh, to think about life in extra extraterrestrial planets. So the first one is uh, entitled "Vegetation's Red Edge: A Possible Spectroscopic Biosignature of Extraterrestrial Plants." And you say uh, Earth's plants have a sharp order of magnitude increase in leaf reflectance uh, between approximately 700 and 750 millimeters of wavelength. Not millimeters, it, that would, should be. Oh, nanometers, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be a big wave, yeah. Uh, 750 nanometers of wavelength. And the strong reflectance of Earth's vegetation suggests that surface biosignatures with sharp spectral features might be detectable. So, um, I mean, uh, as far as I know, Ed, uh, the, the basic idea is that we're looking for planets, we're looking for Earth-sized planets, we're looking, looking for uh, sort of terrestrial um, planets, we're looking for them in the, what is called the habitable zone so that it can have water. And then we, we take a leap forward to say, if you have, you know, Earth-like planet having water, uh, there's a high likelihood there could be life there. Uh, but, uh, but you're suggesting here, perhaps we can use other type of data, right? So, so if, if those planets out there in other solar systems um, had plants, um, we, could, we could potentially measure something? Right. And uh, like so many things in astrobiology, um, this is, you know, based on, I guess, maybe hope or assumption would be the bright words that extraterrestrial life might resemble terrestrial life because, uh, and, and people outside the field of astrobiology often complain that we're, we're make you know, that life could be very different and we're, you know, we're too much depending on the assumption that the life we know is typical. Absolutely a great point and certainly true. And I think astrobiologists are sort of in the position of someone, I don't know, trying to learn about dogs and write a book about <laughs> dogs and what dogs are like. But yeah. they've only ever seen one dog. They have one dog, but they have, no, <laughs> they have no way of knowing, you know, whether all dogs are that size and that color and whether they all wag their tails and whether they all like to eat the same things or, you know, whether they're all named Spot or, you know, whatever. <laughs> Uh, and, and yet, without any other information, it's about the best we can do. So, so the idea, yes, is to imagine that um, a feature which is a very strong uh, indicator of plant life, a very strong signature, let's say, of plant life, which uh, was noticed, discovered, I don't, uh, you know, I think more than a century ago, it's in our paper, I've forgotten the history, but discovered mm -hmm. on Earth, but also seen from, from space on the Earth, is that the fraction of the light that re is reflected by a leaf of a plant that grows in the temperate zone, a deciduous plant, that's a plant that loses its leaves annually, yeah. um, goes from up by a factor of 10 or more 
on a very narrow range of wavelengths for good biological reasons that have to do with the nature of photosynthesis and the pigments that capture uh, yeah. radiated energy uh, uh, and turn it into chemical energy that the plants use, and of course that uh, the you know feeding off of plants and things that animal life uses on Earth. It's a very, very important. Uh, so this is something that they they're not using for photosynthesis, so it goes goes back. Yes, that's right, and they can't use it for photosynthesis, and it's actually, um, well, let me explain a little bit. The photosynthesis involves uh, plants using photochemical transitions and pigments, meaning that a chemical goes from one energy state to another by absorbing a photon. And so you capture that little bit of solar energy uh, and uh, store it in a chemical form that is then through a very complicated series of reactions transformed into sugars and eventually ADT and the energy used by living things. Yeah. Uh, but like all, uh, quantum transitions, including photochemical ones, there's a minimum energy the photon has to have to make that transition. You know, it's like picking the molecule up and moving it, a, you know, into a higher energy state by a certain mm -hmm. fixed delta, uh, you know, a certain fixed amount. And if the photon doesn't have that much energy, it just can't do it. Right. So the photons on the long wavelength, shorter wavelength photons have more energy. So on the long wavelength side of this minimum energy, the lower photons, lower energy than this minimum energy, uh, which corresponds to the wavelength of the red edge, uh, simply aren't useful for photosynthesis, but they can heat the plant. Mm. And at temperate zone temperatures, you know, like we have in, you know, most of the planet, but not the polar, not really cold places, yeah. um, the efficiency of photosynthesis, the fraction of the energy they absorb that they can change into the chemical form goes down as the temperature goes up pretty steeply. Mm. So the, uh, the plants really don't want that energy. They don't want to be warmed up. And plants in the temperate zone do lots of things to keep cool. They sweat, they have big flat leaves that can radiate away the energy and uh, uh, through a variety, they actually circulate, move energy through them by very slow circulation of fluids and things. So they're yeah. all about keeping cool. And uh, so they want to reflect this. And if they don't, ref the, the photons in this range that aren't reflected mostly pass through these big flat leaves. Mm. So if you, if you look at something at, you know, a little short of the, a little shorter wavelength, very far red, but not infrared uh, energies that, uh, that strike a plant, like 95% of it or 90% of it or so is getting uh, perhaps absorbed, uh, mm. the rest reflected. But if you go, you know, just a little bit, five, 10% further into the infrared, just beyond where humans can see, then the plant is maybe absorbing 5% instead of 95%. It's either mm. reflecting it or letting it pass through. So it's a very strong rejection of those photons. Um, and um, it serves that biological purpose of helping keep the plants cool. Uh, plants that are, uh, you know, coniferous plants that live in cold regions where they need to avoid freezing don't have this behavior and their leaves aren't flat. They're like needles. They're just, they're doing the opposite. They're trying to keep warm. So mm -hmm. it is an evolutionary adaptation it appears to um you know to the sort of biochemistry of photosynthesis something so that yes go ahead. yeah no no so so the, the wavelength itself um could be a uh, a feature of earth's plants right um and so so if you were to look for this it's not necessary that we get 700 750 nanometer reflection we may get a reflection uh, at some wavelength, uh, presumably the, the the extraterrestrial plant uh, could have could have different uh, different features, right? Yes, and and here we wade into the uncertainties of of you know whether extraterrestrial how closely it would resemble uh, life yeah. on Earth. Uh, the the reason that the wavelength is where it is 
uh, is because the pigments that plants employ to capture the photons, that pigment in this case is just a word for the chemical that capture these photons, uh, the photosynthesis depends on a, a bunch of different pigments, actually. And in <laughs> fact, the whole reason the plants look green to our eyes is there's sort of a, a crack between the pigments that uh, absorb absorb light that's bluer, you know, to the shorter wavelength, bluer side of green, and the pigments that absorb light to the redder side of green light at about 550 nanometers. <laughs> so the little, the extra light that leaks through there is what makes plants look green to us. It's still very much less than, uh, you know, the red edge. But, um, <laughs> but yes, in principle, if extraterrestrial plants had pigments, you know, evolved pigments that could capture additional photons that say went out to 800, let's say, nanometers, <laughs> then the edge, they might have an edge there. Um, the only, there's no, that's a possibility. Yeah. One argument against it is that it would be a big uh, energetic advantage for a plant on Earth to be able to hook into that extra energy. There's a lot of extra energy out there. Mm. And so, you know, in the hundreds of millions of years that we have had vegetation, land vegetation on Earth, um, or for that matter, and even longer in the sea, plankton and stuff, billions of years, evolution has not found a more uh, 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 a uh, pigment that is helpful in going out into mm. that regime. So, but we don't even know that chlorophyll, this is all based on chlorophyll-driven photosynthesis, for all we know, on a different planet. It yeah, could be yeah. a very different form of photosynthesis. But uh, but if we see an edge at, at the position of Earth's red edge, that, to me, will be very strongly suggestive. And if we see an edge somewhere else, right. that will be less compelling, but still very, very interesting. Hmm. So if, if we look back, if we go up and look back, um, to Earth, we will we will clearly see this. Yes, we have seen it. In fact, in yeah. the light coming off the Earth, I think uh, Carl Sagan led a group in reflected light off of forests, as seen from, like I believe, the Galileo or some space probe that was doing a gravity assist off of the Earth and flew quite close to the earth and they had pointed the cameras down and looked at forests and i want to say australia but i'm not sure now i recall and uh you know saw this uh red edge that is pointing your detector directly at plants you know are there there's also the question of whether you would see it in the if we if we are observing an exoplanet we're not going to see different parts of the planet in i'm in the foreseeable future, I would guess it'll be a very long time, but um, but we would see the light coming from the whole planet. So there's a question of whether the red edge would show up in um, in the light of a uh, of the Earth, you know, seen as a whole, like an like a yeah. alien astrobiologist might look at our solar system. And uh, you can actually test that by observing the uh, light of the Earth reflected off the dark side of the moon, the so-called Earth shine. You know, if you look at a crescent yeah. moon, you can often see a faint illumination of the night side of the moon. And by analyzing that light, um, you can uh, detect the red edge, and that has been done by a number of groups. Including, there was some there was some spectra that we published in, I think, a, a paper you referred to, where we yeah. looked at the moon when someone standing on the dark side of the moon would have looked down on the earth and seen, uh, you know, South America basically in the middle of the terrestrial disk, which has lots and lots of plants. And then we later observed at a time when someone on the dark side of the, you know, in the night side of the moon, if they'd looked at the earth, would have seen mostly the Pacific Ocean, which doesn't, of course, have a lot of uh, forests. And um, so, and you can see the difference in the red light. So, in fact, as the, yeah. the, as the Earth rotates, uh, a distant observer would, so to speak, see it flashing 
red off and on as different uh, areas of the planet came into view. Right. Yeah, I, I was wondering, you know, with um, advances in artificial intelligence, um, if we if we take the Earth's pattern of the entire spectrum um, and then use that uh, as to sort of assign a probability that there's something out there, um, seems like it's something that we could do in the future. Yes, there there's actually, you know, uh, I mean, not so much at this point, at least, I don't think. I mean, right now, artificial intelligence is in a boom phase and uh, being applied to all sorts of problems. But even aside from any AI approaches uh, for more than, for around 20 years now, NASA has had a sort of, it's part of its long-term research plan. They, may, they have sort of, uh, sort of scientific agendas and, and uh, roadmaps that usually refer them to them as, as scientific roadmaps going a few decades into the future, partly because missions take so long to plan and engineer and develop and so on, often take decades. Um, yeah. uh, an idea for a mission, which was at least originally, I think it's had different names, but it's called Terrestrial Planet Finder. But the idea was exactly that, is to uh, build uh, uh, space, you know, to have telescopes in space that would be designed to search for things like the red edge, but also and maybe even more uh, sort of more straightforward and more uh, technologically, I think, less challenging, but still very challenging to, would be to get spectra of the planet's atmosphere and see if it contained oxygen, for example, mm -hmm. which, uh, of course, in the Earth's atmosphere is produced by the respiration of plants and uh, to uh, also to uh, look for water vapor, you know, large amounts of water vapor and variable amounts of water vapor in the atmosphere would suggest the presence of, you know, large bodies of water on the surface and perhaps of weather that rain, you know, precipitation that t takes water out of the atmosphere and evaporation that puts it into the atmosphere and so on and so forth. So there, there's, you know, thick documents and major studies. In fact, it's how I personally got involved in some of this stuff was mm. working on some NASA uh, study of how one, one might do this. So yes, I, 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 uh, I'm not sure it will occur. Probably, well, most certainly won't occur during my professional lifetime and maybe not in my mortal lifetime, but I think in the lifetimes of, of, uh, of, you know, many of your listeners, and we will certainly have, uh, uh, we certainly plan to have missions that would have at least some chance of looking for these uh, biosignatures, as they're called, of, uh, on extrasolar planets. Yeah. You, you have another paper along the same lines, uh, Ed, which is, uh, if I understand this correctly, again, looking for photometric variability. So if you have large water bodies and the, and the planet is rotating, that, sh that again, should create um, some detection uh, patterns for us, right? Yes, that's, I, I have had a lot of fun with that, uh, with that uh, idea, uh, which is simply the fact that um, if, you, if we are able to see a, um, an extrasolar Earth, let's say, fairly near the solar system, let's say within 10 parsecs, which is like, 32 or something light years, sort of an arbitrary mm -hmm. distance, but it's in that distance, there's a couple of hundred more or less sun-like stars. So it's a sort of, it's sort of become a canonical initial volume of the universe we would like to aspire to being able to search. So if you put the earth at that distance, it's extremely faint. It's about as faint as the faintest object the Hubble Space Telescope has ever seen in its longest mm -hmm. exposures. Uh, which are a couple of weeks, a week or two. So it's it's not beyond, it's not too faint for us to see, but it's damn close to being too faint for us to see. Yeah. Um, and it's also parked right next to us, the star that it's orbiting, if it's in the habitable zone, making it yet more difficult uh, because of the glare. So a lot of, there's a lot of technology involved in how you might be able to look at it. But anyway, if we ever do see it, what we will have is all of the complexity represented by the Earth. Imagine one of the 
beautiful pictures of the Earth taken, you know, by uh, space probes or astronauts on the, you know, on their way to the moon and that sort of thing. Uh, mm. But now it's just reduced into a tiny point of light you can barely see right. uh, with no detail. So that's discouraging in a way, uh, especially if you're, <laughs> you know, you're a science fiction, if I, you know, you go to the movies and see the spacecraft, you know, or the Star Trek or whatever, you know, it's zooming in over these beautiful planets and seeing all their uh, <clears throat> details. But it turns out that we have a little access to that by just looking at the variations in the brightness mm -hmm. of such a planet as it rotates. And once mm -hmm. again, it's to our advantage or, you know, it's helpful to imagine what it would look like if you saw the Earth rotating. And I already alluded to that, or we already talked about it a little in the context of the red edge, you know, because sometimes yeah. you'd be seeing a lot of planet plants uh, would be, and you know, if you're looking at a landmass with heavy foliage and other times you wouldn't be seeing much if you're looking at an ocean or something, uh, was where yeah. most of the reflected light was coming from. One thing we found out in, is uh, in the paper you mentioned is that a remarkably small fraction of a planet's surface at any given moment is producing a large fraction of the uh, reflected light that you or scattered light, more technically correct, where that you're seeing. Yeah. Um, something like 80% of the light comes from about 10% of the surface of the Earth for a, a hypothetical uh, mm. alien telescope looking at it. So as the Earth rotates, that 10% changes, and, and so the brightness of the planet will change. And while it's very hard to study one of these very tiny, faint little points of light, measuring its yeah. brightness is maybe, and variations in its brightness, and averaging those over a number of rotations to get rid of, beat down the noise and so on, is, we think, one of the more practical things we can do. And uh, as the planet changes in color uh, and uh, brightness and so on, uh, you know, by changes in color, I mean the brightness in different wavelength ranges changes differently. Um, you know, you get, you get some information on the surface. And um, mm. at the time uh, we wrote the paper you mentioned, uh, which was written by uh, uh, Eric Ford and Sarah Seeker and myself and back around 2000, I think that's the paper you're referring to. Um, yeah. The... Um, The, the 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 ref, the, uh, the reflectivity the right. oh, yeah. the the light change yeah. people yeah. didn't realize there would be such large variations and so on but we had yeah. fun with we, yeah. so we made computer calculations what I was going to say is we had a lot of fun trying out changing the Earth in various ways uh, and seeing mm -hmm. how much difference it made to the to the uh, the brightness so we made sort of different Star Wars planets we made uh, Tatooine, the desert planet, by making a model of the Earth with no plants, just desert, and Dagobah, the jungle yeah. planet, by covering the whole landmass with with uh, with uh, vegetation, and Hoth, the ice world, yeah. by assuming everything was covered with ice and so on, all the landmasses. Mm -hmm. and, and the not very surprising conclusion was that if you make big qualitative changes in the uh, properties of the surface of the planet, you make big qualitative changes in its light curve. So, uh, so mm -hmm. it is encoding information. And uh, much later work uh, by a variety of people, including Yuko Fuji, now at the National Astronomical, Astronomical Observatory of Japan, showed that, uh, which I was, I must say, skeptical of at first, that you could actually uh, somewhat retrieve that information, do what's called the inverse problem, take realistic looking data with actual noise and all the sort of problems that real data have, and back out of it at least a rough indication of, um, of a, um, you know, how, how much of the planet's surface was covered with water versus ice versus vegetation right. if it had a red edge. And all of this is assuming you know, that they're similar property, you know, that the planet's surface is not made out of 
crystals or something. You know, it's somewhat similar to the Earth's surface. And you can learn a lot of things, so, including where coastlines yeah. are and stuff. <laughs> so, so practically speaking, though, Ed, this has to be sort of 10 parsecs, uh, 30, 30 light years uh, sort of distance, right, for us to observe these yeah, things? Well, in principle, you know, if you have perfect instruments and big enough telescopes, it, it wouldn't have to be that close. But, but okay. yes, that's already, I mean, it's already very hard. And it, it gets hard, harder in two different ways if you wanted to go out to a larger distance. One is that the planet goes, of course, fainter, like the inverse square of the distance. So if you wanted to look twice as far, it's four times fainter. But maybe even mm -hmm. more seriously, the dis separation in the sky, the angle between the very bright star and the uh, very faint planet, the glare problem or the dynamic range problem, as it's more properly called, mm -hmm. gets harder and harder. By uh, So if you make the if you're looking at a system that's twice as far away, that separation is uh, half as big. It goes, you know, inversely rather than inverse square. But the combination mm. of those two is for any given capability of an observing system that you might have, there's going to be a pretty hard limit on how far you can look. And, you know, if we're really lucky and to find, find a, you know, a, an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone of a sun-like star, you know, that's among the nearest sun-like stars instead of near the, among the nearest few hundred, you know, if it's like the fifth nearest one or something, then, then things yeah. get a lot easier and we can do all of this much better with the same system or do it, you know, with a less, a smaller and less expensive system. So, um, yeah. So intuitively, at least, you know, the city experiment looking for electronic signals, uh, and we already talked about uh, how how unlikely how unlikely that might be. Sorry about that. Um, uh, no worries. I, I can I can edit this out. It's not a problem. So, so what what I was saying was that. Um, um, the city city experiment um, looking for electronic sort of signals, and we already talked about how unlikely that is that is going to be for a variety of reasons. At least intuitively, it seems to me that these types of observations, if you if you take a sweep uh, of thirty um, light years or so uh, away from the Earth, you take a take a sweep of that. And I don't know how many uh, planets, uh, Earth-like planets, you might find in that uh, in that sphere. But assuming you find a find a number, and you you take this uh, measurements, and we find that there is nothing there in in that sphere that has, um, you know, that uh, that has anything like this. It, it is sort of the next data point, right? Um, that tells us at least. There is, it's very difficult to find intelligent life, but it's a lot easier to find potentially life in this fashion. Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I, one of the little digs at some of my colleagues I occasionally make when I'm in the past, when I was, this was newer research and I was presenting it in colloquium things is that the SETI people often say with the, uh, you know, I would say the characteristic arrogance of our species that the, the strongest indication of life on Earth is the radio signals we have been, and radar <laughs> signals we've been sending out. But the that just happened um, last hundred years. We've been around right, for exactly. We're 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 pathetic <laughs> compared to the uh, to the trees. You know, the least intelligent things, <laughs> plants, the least intelligent creatures on the Earth, have been sending out very vastly more powerful signals not intentionally of course but for hundreds of millions right. of years and uh you know compared to as, exactly as you said a hundred years one of the problems with finding intelligent life is even if it's common if it doesn't last a really long time we'll have a hard time it, it won't be here won't be there when we're looking even if it was before or will be later so i i'm mm. pretty pessimistic about SETI personally that said I definitely support doing research because you shouldn't. Well, science is all about finding out you're wrong by actually doing experiments. So I, I, I 
all in favor of continuing the SETI enterprise and looking. Because if it were to succeed, you know, it's a it's one of these asymmetric consequence sort of uh, calculations. Not seeing something tells us very little. Seeing something would be mm. incredible and enormous impact. So even if it's, a, you know, it's buying a lottery ticket, the way I look at it, this is the second time lottery tickets have come up in our conversation. <laughs> you know, almost certainly you're going to yeah. lose, but if you win, you know, it'll change your life. And uh, that's SETI to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the pessimism for me is uh, just the space-time constraints on it. So the signal has to arrive here precisely at the, at the time that we're looking for it. And, you know, it's a bit like um, yeah, it, to coordinate that, the probability of that happening, even if, even if there are a lot of uh, planets out there with life, it has to arrive here precisely when we're looking and for it. Right. And we, and, yeah. and from the right of the <laughs> yeah. direction we're looking and, and in the frequency or way right. we're looking at things, there's lots of, lots, of, uh, lots of ways we could be missing each other. The Fermi paradox, of course, is based on the conclusion that interstellar travel would be easy enough for life to and spread if you right. a lot of it. And that, of course, could be the case or it might not. But... Yeah, I mean, the other, other philosophical uh, question is, if, if you have really evolved life form, will they have any incentive to show themselves? Um, I would, I, my intuition is that they wouldn't. And so we are little, you know, little uh, microbes here <laughs> looking out, looking for some intelligent life form, and they have no intention of ever making a communication. Yes, I, I mean, that, that is, there's a whole book, uh, which unfortunately, neither the title nor the author of I can remember about possible, you know, resolutions of the Fermi paradox, which isn't really a paradox, of course. But, um, you know, that's one of them is that they're just indifferent or whatever, you know, there's an amusing, you know, sort of science fiction speculation that we suddenly get, you know, these incredibly interesting looking powerful signals from some the sky. And, you know, after we investigate, we discover, you know, that it's the third grade science project of some <laughs> you know, but it's, but, but the civilization itself isn't really interested. But you know, some 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 quirky alien decided it might be fun or something like that. But uh, uh, <laughs> sort of like putting the ants or something. But uh, uh, anyway, yes. I, I. But we're profoundly, profoundly ignorant about all of this. And while I think it's a lot of fun and I enjoy actually myself, you know, trying to speculate about these things and so on. I, I think it's, as I said, when you asked me what my preferred hypothesis for the origin of life was, I think it's really important not to have a preferred hypothesis when you mm. don't know. Mm. And I'd say we don't know. Right, right. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Ed. Thanks so much for spending uh, time with it. me. And it was yeah. a lot of fun Good. and uh, I, I enjoyed the conversation and I hope, I hope whoever hears it will find it of some interest. Thanks so much. You too. Stay safe. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.